Boy, you got so nice and quiet for me. Thank you. Good morning. <laughs> if only my teens were like that when I had it. No, just kidding. No. Appreciate you. Thank you. Welcome to December, last month of the year. A precious time of worship for us in the church in so many ways, um, encouraging us to think about who the Lord would have us invite to uh, church or, or special services, etc. But thankful that you're here. Thankful for those online. Thankful for the opportunity to praise him. Let's just go ahead and, and bow our heads right now, and I'll open us up in prayer this morning here. Father, we ask that you help us not to take for granted what we're about to do, which is to approach you once again. Um, when we think of history, we think of the kings in history, especially the mighty kings, we realize that no one was allowed to come before their throne, um, and sometimes under the, the great fear would people dare approach a king's throne. There were not many kings of grace and mercy through the ages, but all are dead and gone, um, not Jesus Christ. He's the one that lives forever, king of kings, lord of lords. He is the one that says, come before my throne of grace to pray, to speak with me, to commune with me. What a privilege that is. And to, to worship, and not only individual worship, it's collective worship. This is a special time of worship that we come before you this morning, and we thank you so much, Father. We're so blessed beyond belief, and I just pray for us this morning you'd help it to show in our response of worship. Help us to look to you and to look above to you in the heavens where you where you dwell and to worship and to understand even though that is the reality of you, Father, you're still with us. You're still with us this morning. Your presence is here. Thank you so much. We are so blessed. And we pray we'll have a great morning together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing to our Savior, our King, our Father. Oh 
for that wonderful cross. I'd like to, to read through Psalm 2 this morning. You and, you and I together, as we look at this, when the message comes, such a strong, powerful, thoughtful song that we do together. I will start and ask you to respond as it says, congregation. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them with his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the, the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the land. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word.
every single dream. I lay each one down at your feet. Every moment of my wandering never changes what you see. I've tried to win this war, I confess. My hands are weary, I need your rest. Mighty warrior, king of the fight, no matter what I face, you're by my side. When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. Truth is, you know what tomorrow brings. There's not a day ahead you have not seen. So in all things, be my life and breath. I want what you want, Lord, and nothing less. When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't park the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. I will trust in you. You are my strength and comfort. You are my steady hand. You are my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. Your ways are always higher. Your plans are always good. There's not a place where I'll go. You've not already stood. When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't park the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. I will trust in you. I will trust in you. Jordan, thank you for that reminder to trust our Lord in all life circumstances. Well, good morning. We want to welcome you here this morning, and especially those of you that are with us maybe for the first time, we want to encourage you to, um, after the service this morning, go back to our connection corner, just get some information about our church. You can find out about our Sunday school um, uh, hour to follow as well. And uh, if they're busy, you can always go out to the Welcome Center in the foyer as well. Um, but just a few things to mark your calendars if you haven't done so already. Um, December 9th, that's a Saturday, is the, and that's coming up here. That's the adult Christmas party. All right. Now, there's some additional information, times, and so forth in the bulletin. So make note of that in your bulletin and on your calendars. And then also, one other just quick reminder here before prayer. And that is that uh, tonight is communion. All right, so we encourage you to come back out and celebrate the Lord's Supper together uh, with us. And uh, it, is a, it is a good time. and It is time that is well spent being together celebrating that. So we encourage you to come back out 
um, here this evening. That Christmas party is Friday night, the night. No problem. Some of you, no doubt, have heard, but uh, just if you haven't, Andy Kometz is in the presence of his Savior. Yesterday morning, late morning, he passed away, so Andy doesn't need our prayers anymore. His prayer is answered. But we need to pray for Sharon and the rest of the family. Let's stand together for prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the glorious hope that we do have in Jesus Christ. We have sung of that hope this morning, and it is only because of that wonderful cross of which we also have sung. We thank you for the sacrifice of our Savior on our behalf. And through faith in him, we can have that glorious hope of being in your presence forever. Father, we look forward to that day when our Savior will return, that glorious day when the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will rise, and we shall forever be with the Lord. Those who are still alive will meet him in the air. We thank you, Father, for just that hope that we have this morning, and we do thank you for Andy, for his testimony in our midst for these years. We thank you, Father, for his faith. We thank you for his faithfulness. We just ask that you would encourage now the family, especially Sharon at this time. Pray, Father, that she would find that comfort that you, the God of all comfort, alone can give. And as she certainly sorrows in her loss of her husband, we recognize, Father, that she can rejoice in that assurance that she will see him once again. And she will see her Savior face to face. And Father, we just pray that you would encourage strengthen the rest of the family as well. We pray, Father, that they might look to you during this time of sorrow and loss. We do thank you, Father, for this Christmas season. It's so easy to get focused on ourselves and our busy schedule because it is a busy time. And Father, we can get so focused on our busy schedules that we neglect to truly focus upon our Savior, to truly focus upon the Reality that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And I pray, Father, that throughout this Christmas season we would not miss the opportunities to proclaim that truth. The opportunities abound. And yet, so often we do get so focused upon ourselves and our own busy schedules and we miss those opportunities. And I pray, Father, you'd open our eyes that we might proclaim your truth to do so boldly, to do so in love, to do so in humility. We thank you, Father, for this time of year that we can focus upon your sacrifice in sending your Son in our behalf. And Father, this morning, even as we've already read from Psalm 2, the question is raised, why do the nations rage? And certainly we continue to ask that question as we look around our world this morning. But you've given the answer. Because man has taken a stand against you and has cast off your standard. 
Why would we expect anything other than the nations raging when they've turned against the sovereign one, the creator? And Father, we would pray for the leaders of our country that they had recognized that the answer to the raging nations is not found in their own wisdom, but only in their submission to you. In their submission to Jesus Christ, the one who truly is the anointed king, who will indeed rule in the kingdom of men. The one who will rule with a rod of iron. The one who has authority and power. And Father, we pray that we would be an example to those who have submitted ourselves to you, and that others would see that submission, that they would recognize likewise their responsibility before a holy God. Thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for the opportunity of fellowship, for the opportunity of worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's one of those songs that in the Christmas season you may hear and you're like, hmm, I'm hearing the instrumental. What are the words to that? And 
wasn't that long ago in my life when I looked up the verse and thought, wow, the words are just as pretty as the song is. And it does direct us straight to the answer, who's the one that saved us in the bleak midwinter? Who's the one that came when things were totally dark and lost and lonely and there was no other hope? Jesus Christ, he's the one at the end of that song and beautiful piece there. So do you have a picture at home of your family and all the relatives at a family gathering? You may. I think we do somewhere. It's not hanging prominently right now anywhere specifically. But if you ever pull that out, whether it's by yourself or with your family, you start looking through all the family members, and maybe you have a thought about them. Maybe it's something that is really funny, a crazy Uncle Ed or whoever it is. Or maybe it's something that is sad because you realize you didn't miss, you miss so-and-so, they're not there with you any longer. Uh, maybe it's something sweet, maybe it's a kid that's now five foot taller than they used to be. Um, but all kinds of memories, I think, flood in when you look at that big relative picture there. Um, I think some of the sweetest moments are when you're able to share, when you look at a picture like that of one that is no longer with you, but left a deep impact and a deep legacy. And I hope if you haven't had that in your life that you will or that you'll get a chance soon as we have these family gatherings over the holiday seasons of talking about that special someone, that special man, that special woman, father, grandfather, maybe even great-grandfather, great-grandmother in your life that left a, a legacy. Um, you know, I can't help but as we think about communion tonight, it's in some ways as simple as a family gathering. Once again, talking about the one that left not only just a legacy, but is no longer missing, but is the one that is very much with us and loves us and helps us and calls us to remember. And we're not just remembering an instant, a single miracle or instant in the life of Christ. We're remembering what he did as the greatest sacrifice anyone could ever make for the sake of you and the sake of me. And to get together and to remember that is invaluable. That's what we do at communion. So in recognition of communion tonight, a warm welcome to come, a heartfelt cry to invite to come, and a song we're gonna sing that we sing at communion. Maybe, maybe you've never sung before, but it's a beautiful song that we often sing, remi reminding us of the sacrifice. It's called Behold the Lamb. So for many of you maybe new, why don't we stand and we sing this song together? very easy tune to pick up on but lord i i pray this help us not forget and jesus part of that answer to that prayer is the command to remember come be with your body of believers and remember never forget
God, please help us not to forget, but to remember Jesus did this for us in his name. Amen. Thank you. Let's be seated. I invite you to turn to Psalm 2, which we read together earlier. In that first verse, the question is is raised, why do the nations rage? David is the probable author of this psalm, though he doesn't specifically identify himself here. It is pretty much universally accepted that he was the author of this psalm. and So he raises that question 3,000 years ago, why do the nations rage? You'd think that after 3,000 years, man would have an answer to that question. You'd think after 3,000 years, man would have solved that problem. That the nations would no longer be raging. That man, after 3,000 years, would have come to an answer as to why the nations are raging and would have corrected the problem. But the question is still asked 3,000 years later. Why do the nations rage? We look around our world today and the nations are raging. There is no peace. We come to the Christmas season and you ask uh, many times adults what's on their Christmas list and how many times will people say peace on earth? But there is no peace on earth. The nations rage. Why? This psalm gives the answer. It's not an answer that man wants to hear, but this psalm does give an answer. Why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Why do the nations rage? Because they have taken a stand against God and have cast off his standard. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning as we come to this psalm that you do give answers to man's basic questions. Questions that man on their own can't answer. Questions that man asks, and when you give the answer, they reject the answer. I pray, Father, this morning that in our own hearts we would accept your answer, that we would submit ourselves to you and trust in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we do have that question this morning, why do the nations rage? There's really two questions in verse 1. The first one is, why do the nations rage? The, the word rage here, it's, it's the idea, it, it carries with it the idea of, of confusion, and chaos, commotion. Uh, your translation may even say, why is the nations in an uproar? It's also a word that, that uh, carries with it the idea of, of hostility and anger. And so that, all of those thoughts are involved in, in this word translated rage or, or uproar. Why do the nations rage? Why, why are the nations in confusion? 
Why is there such chaos? Why is there such hostility? Why is there such anger? Why is there such fighting among the nations? That certainly seems to define our world today, doesn't it? Rage, confusion, chaos, an uproar, fighting, anger. We think of Ukraine. We think of North Korea. We think of Taiwan. We think of Myanmar. The nations are raging around us. We think of in our, within our own country, the hostility and the anger and the confusion even within our own country, the nations are raging. David asked that question, as I said, 3,000 years ago. You'd think we'd have an answer. Man in his wisdom cannot answer that question. We still ask that same question today. Second question, why do the peoples imagine a vain thing? Or again, your translation may say, why do they plot in vain, or why do they devise a vain thing? Uh, the word vain here, it's the idea of, of that which is, is uh, futile, that which is empty, that which does not work. In fact, it, it really relates to futile activity, that which accomplishes nothing, that which is empty. Why are the peoples plotting that which is destined to failure? That which will not work, it's futile, it's worthless, it's empty. Man in his wisdom thinks they can fix this problem of the raging nations. Man in his wisdom thinks that he can, can solve this issue. And so they plot and they devise, and it's all futile. It's all ending in failure. Every attempt of man to solve this raging nation problem ends in failure. They plot a vain thing. It's futile activity on the part of man to devise and to plan and to plot, trying to solve the raging nations. And it ends in nothing. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul makes that statement, man's wisdom comes to nothing. And David in this psalm is saying the same thing. As people plot and devise and plan, it's a futile activity. It comes to nothing. All of man's plotting and devising to fix the problem are futile and end in failure. Man in his wisdom has no solution, and all their attempts are destined to fail. The reason that is true, the reason that man in his own wisdom cannot solve this problem of the raging nations and it ends in failure always is because man is the problem. And man's not willing to admit that. And we see that as we move on then as we have the answer. In verses 2 and 3, the answer to the problem of the raging nations. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Man has chosen to stand against Yahweh, Jehovah, and his anointed, it says here, the, the, his anointed, that word anointed is the word Messiah, Christ. Man has chosen to stand against Yahweh. And man has chosen to take counsel against the Messiah, his son. In James chapter 4, we read that 
God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Man in his pride has chosen to stand against Yahweh and to take counsel against his Messiah. And man in his wisdom, as they in pride take that stand against God, God will resist him. We can't stand against the creator of the universe. We can't stand against the sovereign one over all of mankind and over all of man's kingdoms. We can't stand against him and expect a different result than simply raging nations and confusion. When the God of the universe, when the creator of the universe, when the sovereign one resists us, there's going to be problems. And man in his pride, in his wisdom, is indeed taking a stand against God, and God is resisting man. God has resisted the rebellious pride of man, and the result is raging nations and futile plotting. In verse 3, let us break their bands asunder, and cast away their cords from us. Man has chosen to cast off God's standard. They don't want to be ruled by God. God has some restrictions as far as man's concerned. God's restricting me from doing what I want to do. And they cast off those restrictions. They cast off God's standards. Man has chosen to, to determine his own standard of right and wrong. They don't want to accept God's standard. And so man says, we'll cast off the standard that God has given to us. Man in his wisdom thinks the answer is found in determining their own standard. We can figure this out on our own. We just need to make our own standard. We can determine what's right and wrong. And we can cast off the standard of God. In Isaiah chapter 55, that's been hinted at already in some of the songs we've sung this morning. Jordan's song made reference to Isaiah 55. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. We don't always understand what God's doing, but we can trust in Him. His standards may seem odd to us. His standards may seem restrictive, but in reality, His thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts and His ways so much higher than our ways. He knows what's best. He knows what's right. He knows what's good for us. He knows that they're not restricting us from doing what is best, but rather they are guiding us to do what is best and what is right and what is good for us. Man cast off God's standard, cast off God's restraint. In Romans chapter 1, we read that when man knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination. They became empty in their thinking. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Man in his wisdom has become a fool in casting off God's standard and trying to determine their own. It started, it started in the Garden of Eden. God had a standard. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan came along and questioned 
God's standard, and Adam and Eve accepted their own standard. And they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and man, ever since, has been determining his own standard. And the result? The nations are raging. The anointed one uh, speaks of here in, in verse 2 is indeed the Messiah. This is a, a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that really is a, a prophecy concerning the coming Messiah, the Christ. And so as he mentions here his anointed one, it is the, the word Messiah. They've taken counsel against him. And in Acts chapter 4, as Peter is speaking, in Acts chapter 4, he quotes from Psalm 2. And he says, at least in part, this thought of the nations taking counsel against his anointed was fulfilled at the crucifixion when the rulers, Herod and Pilate, and then the, the peoples of the nations and the, the people of Israel themselves took counsel against the Messiah, against the anointed one, against the Christ, and they crucified him. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that man in his wisdom, the rulers of this age, crucified the Lord of glory, the one who could solve the problem. They crucified him. They took counsel against him. Ultimately, that will be fulfilled at the end of the tribulation at the battle of Armageddon when the nations will gather together to do battle against the anointed one the Messiah, the Christ. And once and for all, Christ will put down the rebellion. So what's God's response? We have the questions. We have the answer. What's God's response? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. first response is that God laughs. Now, this is not a laugh of, ha ha, that's funny. This is a laugh of, of scoffing, a laugh of mockery, a laugh of ridicule, if you will. He shall hold them in derision, it says, or have them in derision. He will deride them. The word deride here, or derision, is really the, the thought of, of ridicule and mockery. But there's also a thought of, of triumph in victory. In other words, when, when, when an army had uh, uh, victory over uh, uh, another army, they would deride that army, they would mock that army, and that, that's kind of the thought here. It's a, a mockery because one has been victorious. He'll have them in derision. God scoffs. God mocks. In essence, God is saying, you really think you can stand against me? You really think you can cast off my standard and fix your own problems? How foolish. Your attempts, your plotting, your devising will come to nothing. It's futile. You think you can stand against the God of the universe, the sovereign one? You think you can take counsel against his anointed and get away with it? How foolish. He who sits in the heavens 
the one who's enthroned in that place of authority. He rules. He's in control. And whether man admits it or not, whether man likes it or not, God is sovereign. He sits in the heavens. He's enthroned in the heavens. He's sitting upon his throne, and he rules in the kingdom of men. God's not in a panic. God's not looking down and seeing man's rebellion and and, and seeing how how they're taking counsel against him and and he's wringing his hands trying to figure out, oh no, what am I going to do? He's he's not calling his heavenly cabinet together to try to figure out what to do. He just laughs. Man is raging. And they're casting off God's restraints. They're casting off God's standard. They're making up their own rules. They're determining for themselves what's right and wrong. And they think they can solve the problem. And God says, have at it. Rage all you want. Rebel all you want. Cast off all you want. It will be futile. Not only does he laugh, but God speaks. Verse 5. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his great pleasure. God speaks. You know, when God speaks, things happen. God said in Genesis chapter 1, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. God doesn't waste his words. When God speaks, something happens. For God to speak is for God to act. And here when it says that he speaks unto them in his wrath, what we are recognizing that as he speaks, he acts in judgment. And that judgment will vex them in his great pleasure or or terrify them. When judgment comes, man will be terrified. God speaks. God acts. And here in verse 6, or rather in verse 5, God is speaking and acting in judgment because man has indeed rebelled against him. We saw in Genesis chapter 6 that God spoke in judgment. God acted in judgment. The flood of Noah's day was God speaking in judgment. And as God spoke in judgment, he destroyed the world with a flood, saving just Noah and his family. And in Genesis chapter 6, we read God making the statement, I will not always strive with man. God is long-suffering. God is patient. But as he is long-suffering, that long-suffering will come to an end. The patience will be reached. And God will speak in judgment. Again, in the battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation, as man continues to rage among themselves, they will unite together against the anointed and judgment will come. 
And so God speaks. For God to speak is for God to act, and he will act in judgment. We come then to verse 6. God installs. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I have installed my king upon my holy hill in Zion. Notice the past tense. I have set or I have installed my king. We know that it is yet future as far as time is concerned. It's future where Christ indeed will come at that battle of Armageddon. He will put down man's rebellion and he will sit upon the throne in Mount Zion in Jerusalem. He will rule over the earth and he will be the king. And we know that is yet to come. But as God speaks here, it's as if it's already done. It is just as sure and certain. It's as if it's already been accomplished. He has already been installed as king. Man will not stop it. In fact, I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this verse. While men are proposing, God has disposed the matter. Jehovah's will is done, and man's will frets and raves in vain. God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. Spoken as only Spurgeon could speak. (laughs) It's done. The king's already been installed. Man can rage all he wants. Man can throw off God's restraints. Man can come up with his own standard. Man can think that he can solve the problem on his own. It's all futile. And the king has already been installed. The only one that can fix the problem is already on the throne. In response to the king standing against him, God has installed his own king. We come then to the solution. Verses 7 through 9, it's actually the anointed one, this king that speaks. And as he speaks, he says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, that's the the anointed one, the Messiah speaking, the Lord has said unto me, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. And so the son declares the decree of the father. And the decree of the father is, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. It's the Christmas season. We read that verse, this day have I begotten you, and, and our minds immediately go to Bethlehem, doesn't it? And, and we recognize that, that, that Christ was born in Bethlehem, and, and he came to this world, God taking upon himself flesh. But that's not really the main thought of this decree, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. It's not really so much talking about uh, his birth here on this earth in Bethlehem. That's not really the main thought. It's really this this thought, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. It's really more tied in with with the Davidic covenant. Uh, The Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises to David that there would be one who would sit upon his throne forever. Of course, that's fulfilled in Christ. But as he makes that promise to David that there would be one sitting upon his throne forever, he also says to David about his own son, Solomon. And he says of Solomon that when your son, and he says to David concerning Solomon, when your son Solomon uh, is installed as king, I will be like a father to him and he will be my son. 
And so that's really the reference here more. It's tied in with that Davidic covenant as the king of Israel was looked upon as, as the son of God, not in a literal sense like Christ himself, who is the son of God, but, but that, that picture of, of God saying that, that that king of Israel, I'll be a father to him and he'll be my son. And so here, as it relates to the Messiah, the anointed one, he truly is the son of God. But it's really more of a reference here of his installation as king. You are my son, this day have I begotten you. You have been installed as king, and I'll be a father to you, and you'll be my son. That was the promise, and that's the reference here. Now, to be sure, Christ, the Messiah, could not be that king unless he was born as a man in the lineage of David. He had to be in the lineage of David as a man in order to sit upon the throne of David. And so certainly that, that's part of this. But the main emphasis is that he is installed as king. And the, de the king declares this decree that he's been installed as king. And as the king, he is the son of God. The decree has to do primarily with the son's installation as the king. But then he speaks in verse 8 of the inheritance, ask of me. And I shall give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. He speaks here of the promise that the Father made to the Son. The promise that He would inherit the nations and that He would indeed rule to the ends of the earth. The kingdom that the kings and the rulers of verse 2 stood against now fills the earth to the ends of the earth, to the uttermost parts of the earth. The king reigns. The king rules. In Matthew chapter 4, when Satan tempted Christ, he said to Christ as one of the temptations, if you fall down and worship me, I'll give you the nations of the world. Well, the Father had already promised the nations of the world to the Son. Christ didn't have to worship Satan to get those nations. He just had to wait on the Father's promise. The Father had promised the nations to the Son. That was His inheritance. Again, thinking of Christmas time, uh, the verse that we often quote at Christmas, Isaiah 9 and verse 7, of the increase of His government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Of His kingdom there shall be no end. He inherits the nations. He rules to the ends of the earth. And it is forever. That's the promise the Father has given to the Anointed One, the King, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. The kingdom which the kings set themselves against will indeed fill the earth. And then we have the judgment. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. When Christ reigns, he will reign with a rod of iron. The, the symbol of a rod of iron is, is a symbol of authority, a symbol of power, a symbol of strength, and yes, a symbol of judgment. Even as is mentioned here, he'll break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That, that's judgment. He'll rule with that rod of iron with authority 
with power and with judgment. That thought, uh, that, that symbol is used, especially in the book of Revelation, elsewhere in Scripture as well, but in, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 27, he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as vessels of a potter shall they be broken in pieces. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 5, and she brought forth a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Revelation 19, verse 15, this is at the battle of Armageddon itself. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. That symbol of authority and power, and yes, that symbol of judgment, he rules over the entire earth. And so when Christ reigns, he will reign with a rod of iron, symbolizing authority and indeed judgment. And then we come to the last three verses, the invitation. The invitation to the nations. The invitation to the kings and rulers who have set themselves against Yahweh and against His anointed. He gives an invitation. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, rulers of the earth. An invitation to to be wise Think through what you're doing and recognize there is no hope of success. You're standing against Yahweh and against His anointed. You will not succeed. You're casting off His standard. You will not succeed. Be wise about this. Think this through. It's not working. For 3,000 years this question's been asked. Why are the nations raging? Man has been trying to answer that question and they make attempt after attempt after attempt. They plot, they plan, and it all fails. Isn't that the definition that we sometimes say of insanity? Do the same thing over and over again expecting a different result? It hasn't worked. Think this through. Be wise. Be instructed. Be warned. Again, notice that word now, be wise now. I think it's the NIV translation doesn't have that word now in it, but it is there, it should be there. Be wise now. Now's the time to repent. Now's the time to turn to Yahweh and to trust Him because judgment is coming. Again, God is long-suffering 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God indeed is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But His suffering will end. And He will bring judgment. Be wise, He says in verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. He invites them to to come and serve Him, to worship Him, to worship Him in in fear, it says, to worship Him with reverence. Give Him the reverence that He deserves. Give Him the awe that He deserves. Worship and serve Him rather than casting off His standards. Submit yourself to His standards and serve Him. Instead of standing against Him, worship Him. Submit yourself to Him. Give him the reverence that he deserves. Rejoice with trembling. Rejoice in his goodness. Tremble before his anger, before his judgment. The only true joy 
The only true happiness that can come is through submission to his standard, not casting off his standard. Man in his wisdom thinks that that will be happiness. That will be joy to to just do what I want to do, to make my own standard, to make my own determination of what's right and wrong. That's what will bring me joy. And God says, no, true joy is in submission to my standard. That's where you'll find true rejoicing. Instead of casting off God's standard, submit to Him with reverence and serve and worship Him with joy. And then finally, the invitation, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Kiss the Son. Give allegiance to the Son. Pay homage to the Son. Be reconciled to the Son. Love the Son. Rather than rebelling against Yahweh and against His anointed, kiss the Son. Submit yourself to the Son. Give allegiance to the Son. Give allegiance to this King who indeed will rule over the earth. In His righteous anger, He will, it says here, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. Again, that that emphasis of judgment. In his righteous anger, he will bring judgment. And in that righteous anger, he says, uh, but a little, or or perhaps uh, better translated, in a moment. In other words, that that judgment's going to come in a moment. It'll come suddenly. He's warned, he's warned, he's warned, he's warned. And then when it comes, it comes suddenly. In fact, we read in, in uh, Second Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 3, Paul says, when they cry peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Man today is crying out, peace, safety. Sudden destruction will come. God in His righteous anger, the King in His righteous anger will bring that judgment. 2 Peter chapter 3 said, just as, as God destroyed the world with a flood, he tells us that the world is reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment. He's not going to destroy the earth with a flood again, but he will destroy it with fire. And this world is reserved for fire, kept until the day of judgment. It's coming. Kiss the sun. Be reconciled to Him. Give allegiance to Him, lest you perish. Notice the promise that he ends this psalm with. Blessed are all they who put their trust in Him. Promise of blessing. The word blessing here is the idea of contentment, satisfaction, peace. The one who will be content, blessed, the one who will be satisfied in life, the one who, who will have that joy, is the one who will put their trust in Him or find refuge in Him. The one who will indeed turn to this King, the Anointed One, and submit to His standard, and serve and worship Him with joy and with the reverence that He deserves. That's the one who will find contentment. That's the one who will find satisfaction. That's the one who will truly find purpose in life. 
as the nations rage because they're trying to find their own satisfaction in their own standard and in their own way. And they continue to fail. In pride, God resists them. Because of their pride, God resists them. But the one who, in humility, turns to Him and trusts Him, He's the one that finds contentment. He's the one that finds peace and satisfaction. He's the one that finds purpose in life. I think of of Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keeps the law happy is he. Where there is no vision, the word vision there in Proverbs 29, 18 is is just the idea of of God's revelation. God revealed through visions to the prophets. And so where there is no vision or where, where there is no revelation from God or, or the idea is where, where man has ignored God's revelation. When man has, has ignored what he has said in his word, it says the people perish. The word perish there literally means to cast off restraint. See, that's what we have here in Psalm chapter 2. The, the nations are raging. Why? Because they have ignored God's revelation and God's truth, and they have cast off His restraint. And the nations rage. But he that keeps the law, Proverbs 29, 18 says, happy is he. The one who, rather than casting off God's restraint, they submit to God's law. They submit to God's standard. And the one who submits to God's standard, happy is he. Same word, blessed. Here in Psalm Chapter 2 and verse 12. Blessed is he, happy is he, content, satisfied is the one who trusts in him. Content, satisfied in Proverbs 29 verse 18. The content one is the one who has submitted to the law of God. The one who has submitted to God's standard. Happy is he. Contentment comes from trusting in the Son. And so I ask you this morning. Where are you? Is there still rebellion in your heart against God's standard? Are you still standing against Him in one way or another? Have you refused to submit to His standard, to His right and wrong? Have you determined for yourself what is right and wrong? In pride, Have you lifted yourself up and think that you know better than God? God resists the proud. The nations rage. Or have you kissed the Son? Have you given allegiance to Him? Have you submitted to Him? Have you recognized that the true blessedness in life comes through submission to the standard of God, not casting it off. Have you kissed the sun this morning? Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the reminder from your word this morning. Again, it's so easy to get caught up in our feelings and our own emotions to determine what's right and wrong based upon those feelings. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. 
Help us, Father, to realize that to live by that standard is to stand against you. And to stand against you is futile. It won't work. We find contentment and satisfaction in humbling ourselves before you and kissing the Son. May each one of us examine our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. seek us out. That's why we're here, to just help and encourage, to strengthen in the truths of God's Word. Shall we stand? Father, we thank you again for sending your Son. Thank you indeed that from your eternal perspective, he already sits on that throne as you have installed him. Pray that we would submit to the King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Good morning. May God bless you.